All right, good morning again. Let's please turn to Colossians chapter 3 this morning. Make our way through the book of Colossians chapter 3. Before I begin, just uh, update a couple of announcements. A reminder that uh, August 7th is a marriage tune-up. Uh, it starts at 8.30, uh, just a time of fellowship. Uh, just look into the Word of God and exhort and encourage one another in the uh, you know, in marriage. Uh, so again, if you are, it's open to anybody, always. Always like to remind everyone that, um, yeah, if you have any interest in being married, or if you are married, then encouraged to come, and uh, that'll be good. Also, uh, Pursuit of Biblical Manhood. Uh, we postponed what normally is the third Saturday of each month, we postponed that by a week to go out to Andrew and Olivia's house. They've got some work at their house that we're going to try to not make a mess of their place and bring it on. <laughs> yeah, expand the bathroom. So we'll be working out there next Saturday. Starts at 8.30. Uh, Andrew and Olivia have promised to take good care of all those who volunteer and work. That is, feed us. and uh, So that'll be good. We'll send out an email during the week um, just to the guys and coordinate tools and set up a plan. Uh, what else? Yeah, informal ladies get-together at our house this coming Thursday. Some of you ladies have already been contacted on that. If you haven't, you're welcome to come. Um, just make you aware of that. And uh, what I think together. That's September 11th. Um, open forum, sort of bring some content, have a town hall sort of meeting where we talk about issues that are important, try to understand them from a biblical perspective. So that's just put on the calendar for the future. Wanted to get that out to you as soon as we could. Um, yeah, that'll be all I have for announcements at the moment. Let's pray. Father, we open the word. And we know that the word is living and active and sharp and able to move into areas in our life that are untouchable by human hands and able to bring correction, bring encouragement, bring conviction if necessary. So Lord, we know that you've inspired Paul to write these words. That these aren't just words coming from the mind of a man, they're coming from the heart and mind of God through the man to the church. And we understand them by the Spirit of God. So quicken our hearts to your glory this morning. And we pray in your name. Amen. Colossians chapter 3, I want to read verses 1 through 4. Is as far as we're going to go this morning. It says then, if then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory." I just want to bring to your attention, friends, that these four verses are sandwiched right in between 
Paul's last statement of chapter 223, where he talked about the indulgences of the flesh. <laughs> and then right in between, or these four verses come right in between that and verse 5, where it says, therefore put to death your members which are on earth, kill sin. So it's fascinating to me that Paul would, would just stick that right in there. And I just want to say to you that his thesis, his theological thesis, his theme of Colossians is the glory of Jesus Christ. We've said that and we'll repeat it today again. That's the, that's the theme of this letter written to that church and to all the church, to us today as we are sit here. Paul's not deviating from that. Not one bit. In fact, everything that he has said up to this point he is now taking one last stab at it and saying, remember how great your Savior is, that he was before creation. As Paul started back in chapter 1, verse 15, he's the firstborn of all creation, meaning before anything was, he was and is. He is eternal that he's the creator, the sustainer, that he's the head of the body, that he's the one who redeems us and gives us this glorious salvation. And so Paul fixes our eyes on him. And as he, Paul now moves in this chapter to the practical application of what all that means. Praise the Lord, right? So he's not just giving us a lot of doctrine and good doctrine in theology, he's like, now that needs to apply to everyday life. How do you walk that out? And so Paul, I see, as I mentioned to you, and he sandwiches these verses in between the indulgence of the flesh and killing sin, verse 5, which we'll pick up next week. And he puts in there, and he just reminds us of our position with Jesus, Brothers, sisters, do you see it with me? In these four verses, he mentions Jesus, calls him Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, what, four times, and refers to him at the end in with him in glory. So our Savior Jesus is a very personal, very relatable Savior. He came from heaven, he's God, preceded creation, all things were created by him, for him, and through him. And then he came from his glory down here, and he manifested the glory of God's character. Philip, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Look no further, son. Right? And so Paul is just, one last time, fixing our eyes on him. But he's, he's relating to us how how. Deeply, Jesus is intertwined in my life and your life. And he's saying, with that now, start to walk out your life. There goes a couple of baby deer. That's cool. Andrew, put your gun down. <laughs> okay, whatever, Hunter. All right? So, by way of opening illustration, I, you know... I want to say this, that uh, Paul's going to start to give us some imperatives. What's an imperative? It's something to do. It's a command, right? He gives two commands in these two verses, seek and set your mind. Seek the Lord 
and set your mind on things above, not on the things of the earth. So this is Paul now moving from theology to application. That's his way. That's always his way. You see it so clearly in Romans, right? Chapters 1 through 11, he just lays out the gospel, and then he comes to chapter 12. Therefore, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. King James. Right? Ephesians, again, six chapters, first three are theology, next three are application, living it out. So we're going to enter into that. Seek and set your mind on Jesus Christ. The reason Paul is saying this, and the reason he's directing our attention to the glory and the sufficiency of Jesus, and here's where it starts to get personal, is because the people wanted to change. Do you want to change? I want to change. I want to become different because I get frustrated by myself, by my own sinful desires and nature with my response to problems or people that I consider problems or the fact that I become very critical and judgmental and I pigeonhole people unfairly. I get frustrated by that. And these people wanted change. They were being influenced by others who were offering a self-improvement program, but apart from Christ. So understanding that... Understanding that. Do you desire change? Do you want, are you frustrated at times by your own mental health or emotional stability? Of course, we all are. Gets amplified when you walk into a day like we've had yesterday and today. Right? By the way, turn all the lights on, play some music, talk to people, <laughs> right? Be thankful to God. These are just practical things. I'm not here to give you tips for good living, but I guess that's what it is. But you find yourself in a day like yesterday where it was so dark and wet and everything was like, ah, turn all the lights on in the house. So what if it costs more money? Get a dehumidifier, by the way, too. It's helpful. <laughs> Dry out the air. So, interesting. I did an internet search. I just searched. Self-improvement books. There's 80,000 more than 80,000 results. Here's where it gets even more interesting. And I'm saying all this in the context of we want to mature in our Christian life. That is the point that we will, this is what we call sanctification, right? Once you become a Christian, you are born again. Paul went all through that in chapter 2. I won't say it again. But then there's a process, and it is a process that we go through as long as we're living as a Christian. There's a process of losing our appetite for the things of the flesh and the world. And starting to desire more the things of God and God himself. That is the process of sanctification. Let me just remind you, it is a process, right? In other words, there's times of failure, there's times of, oh, wow, the Holy Spirit supernaturally gave me the ability to say or respond and, and do things that I used to not do. 
instead of I'm now doing. It's really glorious. And it's glorious to observe that growth in people. And it's encouraging. That's why there's the benefit of personal fellowship and having Christian community. Because we ought to see as we live together over time, we ought to, those deer are pretty active, aren't they? <laughs> Uh, we ought to see over time uh, changes in one another, right? So this desire for change is really what is at the, what I've come to realize is at the root of what was going on here in this church. So in my search, internet search, I came across a company called Grand View Research, three words. They did an analysis of personal development market as it existed in 2019, and they published the report in July of 2020. They analyzed four major categories, books, e-platform, personal coaching and training, and workshops. Here's what they concluded. The global personal development market was valued at $38 billion in 2019 and is expected to grow at a compound annual growth rate of 5.1% over the next seven years. So there's a little stock tip for you, by the way, if you're an investor. Okay? Invest, never mind. <laughs> but here's their uh, just summarization of this analysis from Grandview Research on the personal development industry. Here's what they said. Increasing consciousness about self-recognition and the pursuit of happiness is expected to drive the demand for personal development programs during the forecast period, now till 27. Individuals are gradually looking for ways to attain physical as well as emotional fitness. Moreover, Improving social skills and focusing on critical areas for self-awareness, such as emotions, character traits, habits, individual values, and the psychological need that shapes the day-to-day -day behavior of individuals are gaining importance. Interesting. So I continued my search, and I said, okay, give me the list of the top 50 self-improvement books of all time, based on units sold. Interesting. Number one, according to a couple of different, uh, couple of different ones, was uh, a book by Napoleon Hill called Think and Grow Rich. <laughs> Napoleon Hill. He wrote it in the 30s, 1930, like just after the, the Great Depression. Think and Grow Rich. It's not sold that much anymore because he's been proven to be a scam artist, okay? He didn't actually think about how to become rich and then write a book. He just wrote a book about becoming rich and didn't think about it much at all. Plagiarized a bunch of stuff. He sold 80 million books. Uh, there's other titles like this. You Can Heal Your Life. Awaken the Giant Within. Ah, don't do that. <laughs> Anthony Robbins, uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, Stephen Covey. Subtitle, Powerful Lessons in Personal Change. 
These are some of the best-selling books of all time because people are in pursuit of a different way of living. Another one, How to Win Friends and Influence People, Dale Carnegie. Who Moved My Cheese? <laughs> Spencer Johnson. Um, I've read that one. It's actually very interesting. Uh, the Power of Positive Thinking, Norman Vincent Peale. He was a pastor. The Power of I Am, Joel Osteen. Trans here's the subtitle. Transform your self-image and embrace the power of positive thinking with two simple words. Declare, I am, and celebrate the life God has created for you. Not a good book from one of America's largest church pastors, Joel Osteen. I don't like saying that, but it's true. I have no joy in saying that at all. Now, friends, <laughs> interestingly enough, as I continued on my search, and I won't elaborate a lot more on our opening illustration here, but Napoleon Hill, in his book, Think and Grow Rich, he openly described visits from spirits in another, sorry, in another book called Grow Rich with Peace of Mind. He described these spirits as unseen friends, unseen watchers, strange beings, and the, quote, great school of masters, close quote, that had been guarding him and who maintain a school of wisdom. Hill states that the master spoke to him audibly, revealing secret knowledge. Were you guys here last week? We talked about this. Just briefly, because Paul brought up in the subject matter last week about the basic principles of the world, spiritual forces, unseen, real, demonic entities that exist that are influencing the hearts and minds of people. And we made the point, angels don't die. Those forces are still alive and active in influencing people today. Interesting, 1967, this guy actually openly talks about it. Dal Carnegie, who wrote How to Win Flynn and Influence People, never claimed to have invented anything. When asked about his philosophy, he said this, the ideas I stand for are not mine. I borrowed them from Socrates, I swiped them from Chesterfield, and I stole them from Jesus. So <laughs> I guess there is some benefit in some of those books, but you have to be very careful as you sort out the wheat and the chaff in there. The Christians in Colossae and around the world then and now, and until Jesus comes back, are desiring change. And Paul now is applying the truth of the personal relationship that we have with this glorious Savior who loves you and gave his life for you and who has given you his life by his Holy Spirit. Paul said it in Galatians 2.20, Christ lives in me. Christ lives in me. He's influencing my heart and mind and will, and he's healing me almost on a daily basis as I find forgiveness, fresh forgiveness for the sins that I commit and that you commit, to be very honest. The great battle that rages inside of us is who are we going to serve, self or the Savior, Jesus or me? And sometimes I stumble and sometimes I walk obediently. 
And so this is the sanctification process. It's losing our appetite for the things of the flesh in this world and increasing a desire for the things of God. And that's why Paul, as he's writing to this church and he's writing to you and I today about the the desire for tangible change, he's like, you're going to find it in Jesus. All these authors, all these authors in in this whole multi-billion dollar market is probably can't blanketly say that they're offering a solution in Christ, but it might be fair to say that. Paul's saying that. You want change? Don't read Socrates. Talk to Jesus. Books. What was the other thing they had? <laughs> they, evaluated, they, they evaluated books personal coaching and training, workshops, and e-platforms. Can I just, I'll spiritualize those. Books. We have the Bible. (laughs) We have the truth, the written word of God, the very thoughts and mind and intent and heart of God inscripturated. It is a word, by the way. I used it last week, and people are like, that's not even a word. Yes, it is. I didn't even know that, but whatever. Books, the Bible, e-platforms. You know what we have? Our e-platform? It's prayer. It's memorization and meditation on the Word of God. Personal coaching and training? Oh my goodness. We have the Holy Spirit. Personal coaching and training. It's the Holy Spirit who, who, who is the umpire of our life and says, don't do that. That you're out. Or that's safe. Right? That's what He does in our lives. And then workshops. What are the workshops? It's the trials of life. Count it all joy. Right? So we all want change. We want better mental health, emotional stability, clear understanding of our purpose for living, not controlled by sinful thoughts, to be genuinely more thoughtful, merciful, and gracious toward others. Isn't that our heart? Isn't that the heart and the influence of Jesus in us? You know this. Right? We want to stop being critical and fault-finding and judgmental of everyone except me, to literally experience the freedom and joy of righteousness that Jesus has promised us. So that's what we're going to talk about here this morning in these four verses. And I think we've already got a a sense of what Paul is saying in that he keeps referring to Jesus and praise the Lord that he has. Paul's not deviating from his message. He's applying it. In other words, if Paul had not taken us through the exercise of stopping and looking at who Jesus is, and he had just jumped right into these verses of how to change, what's the diff? It'd be like a self-help program, right? You with me, brothers and sisters? I just I hope that our hearts would be fastened and trusting and fixed to Jesus and letting Him encourage you daily. I want you to notice with me, I'm just going to point out a few things in observation here, okay? Which is, by the way, what you do when you study the Bible. You observe, you interpret, and you apply. What's it say? What's it mean? What's it mean to me? That is Bible study. That's what a pastor, 
That's what anybody should do. That's what I do. That's what I try to do before coming up here and speaking. What's it say in context, in the greater context of the Bible? How do you interpret it? What's it mean? And what's it mean to me? Really good at it. And when you do that, as Spurgeon say, it's like treading out the grapes. It's the way they used to make grape juice. They'd put all the grapes into a big vat, and everybody would take their sandals off and walk around and squeeze the juice out of the grapes. He's like, you do that with the Word of God, and you will just squeeze out more and more life-giving nutrients and nourishment for our soul, encouragement for us spiritually. So what I observed, which I thought was a real blessing, is the progression of life that we have with Jesus. Let me demonstrate. Look at verse 20, chapter 2, 20. And I just want to show you the with Christ or with him statements that Paul has made. In verse 20, you died with Christ. We died with Christ. Verse 12, we were buried with him. Again in verse 12, raised with him. Chapter 3, verse 3, your life is hidden with Christ. Which is an interesting way of saying that, are you with me, friends? We died with, we were buried with, we were raised with. And now we're hidden with Christ in God, which means Jesus has ascended, and he's seating at, seated at the right hand of the Father. Praise you, Lord. Thank you so much. Paul said in Ephesians 2, verse 6, he said it differently there. Same thing, though. Seated, he has seated us with him in the heavens. So if you're tracking with me, we died with him, we were buried with him, we were raised with him, we ascended with him. And then in verse 4, we will appear with him in his glory at his second coming. All right? What's all that mean? It means that the chains that bound me to my old behaviors and self and the habits and the propensities of the way that I thought, I have been severed from that by the accomplishment of Christ on the cross. He broke those chains. And so the old Scott literally died. And I'll tell you what, friends, the longer you live, the more you realize there is a sinful nature. And it is a monster of iniquity. And it is insatiable. I've come to believe, by the way, that bit of a rabbit trail, but I've come to believe that Goliath represents the flesh more than anything. Other people take a different spin on that whole scene with David killing Goliath. I think he represents the flesh. He's fortified, well-armed. <laughs> Somebody's got a little something going on there. Right? That's, that's, to me, that's all he is. And I think that's the importance of David cutting his head off. Like, I'm removing the power of this man and the intimidation that he has against God's people. I'm taking his head off, and I'm establishing a new head, a new leader, a new authority, 
which is Jesus Christ. This was the great prophecy in the garden, brothers and sisters, as Jesus got the guilty couple together, Adam and Eve, and he said then prophetically, Jesus did that, by the way, he said to the woman, from your offspring will come one who will crush his head. That is the, the beginning of the prophecies of the coming Messiah. And I think that's just, Goliath to me is just a dirty, stinking, smelly, well-armed, fortified, intimidating creature inside of me. And what Jesus accomplished at the cross, he took all that nature upon himself. All of your dark side. And we've all got it. He took it. He, it was all imputed upon him. And then standing, risen up between earth and heaven, the Father judged, gave him what we deserve, poured out his wrath on the Savior. We died with him. We're buried with him. But now comes a resurrection. That means his life is now inside of me. The old man is dead. The new man is alive. And I'm ascended with him. I'm seated, at, which means that the power and the glory of his sovereign power is now transferred into me and guiding me as I walk through this life. And I have the hope that someday I will stand with him when he returns. So, uh, other observations I just want to make mention of to you. Uh, notice that there's two commands, seek and set. There's two places. Did you notice that? Paul mentions it a couple times. There's above and there's on earth, verse 3. Seek those things which are above. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. Okay? So there's two commands, there's two places, in verse 4 statements of reality, which are fact, absolute truth. Those four statements, if you'll just those, within those four verses... Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. You died. That's a fact. Paul said that. Um, verse 3, you died. Okay? It's an absolute fact. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. You see, that's why the power of the gospel can change a human life for eternity. And I, I think Paul was one of the greatest examples for a man who wanted nothing to do with filthy, stinking, rotten, dirty Gentiles. You come in contact with them. Bro, you wash your feet before you go eat. Because you've come in contact with polytheistic, pagan, idol-worshipping, devil-inspired, that's not a word, inspired people, and now you've got to clean up. And Paul went from that to pouring his life and serving them. Eating together just changed everything. The power of the gospel. You died. See, Paul died and then he was risen with Christ and his life became a living testimony of what God can do to change a human heart, a human life. Some of the other statements of fact. Christ is sitting at the right hand. You died. Verse 3. Your life is hidden with Christ and God. And then finally, verse 4, you will appear with him in glory. One other thing I just want to say to you, brothers and sisters, is that, uh, and don't ever miss this, <laughs> all right? Stated very simply, good doctrine 
produces good behavior. Good doctrine produces good behavior. That's why I mentioned earlier, you follow Paul's, the way he writes, Romans, Ephesians, standing here in Colossians, right? He lays down some, some, some serious meat, right? This is not just candy. This takes some thought. It takes some real faith and thought and study and conversation with other brothers and sisters. And when we go through that and we, come, we see the glory of Jesus, in reality, that changes my behavior. So Paul doesn't jump right into all the imperatives, seek and set and kill your flesh and put off and put on and do this and do that until we realize why, until we realize how. Why is because I now have the opportunity to live a holy life. Something that was impossible for me is now possible. And you know what comes with holiness? Joy, peace. The kingdom of God is not food, not meat and drink. It's righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. We're living in the kingdom of God because the king of the kingdom is living inside of us. So I don't know where this is finding you this morning. You know, I had some good fellowship just before church started, talking with a friend. I was like, how are your week? Actually, it's kind of a long week, and there was, you know, reasons for that. It's been a long week maybe for a lot of us for various reasons. And if I wanted to get more specific, I'd say maybe it's because, man, setting my mind on things above, that's like really hard to do. Like, let me just give you a little thought exercise right now, okay? When you're free to think about what, anything you can think about, what do you think about? <laughs> What's your default? Look, and, and I'll... Let's just say it, right? There are certain things that are good and necessary. Maybe there's stresses within the family or at work, and this is what you think a lot about. And don't get bummed out. It's like, oh, my mind is not fixed on Jesus Christ at this moment. Those are real things, right? There's a ton of things that can occupy our mind. Setting those things aside... I honestly believe this about you because love believes all things and hopes all things and bears all things because I know it's true in me that in the core of who I really am in Christ, I will by default end up at his throne. I might have a little bit of a journey getting there, but when I'm standing behind the weed eater for hours on end doing a mindless task or something else, I go through a bunch of stuff. Some of it's embarrassing. But I'll end up back at the throne in fellowship, in prayer, in worship. Which tells me that there is a fixed position that has been given to me. That in spite of me, he's accomplished something that I can't change. If then you were raised with Christ. Now listen, brothers and sisters, this is serious business, what I'm about to say. 
Paul said, if. The best way to understand that word, if, is more of a statement of fact. You might also say, since, parens, this is true, that you have been raised with Christ. In other words, the best way to understand through this word, if, is that it's not a conditional statement or a questioning statement. Paul will use this word a lot. And I know that because of other things that he said. Now hear me out here. For example, in chapter 2, verse 5, Paul said, Though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. And as you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, he says in verse 7, and established in the faith. Paul is not questioning their salvation. He's not. That's not what that word if means. I can tell you, brothers and sisters, years and years ago as a young Christian, I was asked to speak at a marriage retreat, actually, and the Lord led me to speak from this chapter. And I got to tell you, it nearly drove me, and I'm honest about this, it nearly drove me insane because I could not get over this word if, because I felt like Paul was challenging my salvation, and yet I knew I was saved. And we're like, what am I supposed to do? Question this? No, it's not what it means. Now, having said that, let me say this. Paul actually has never met these people. He revealed that to us in chapter 2, verse 1. You've never seen me, and I've never seen you. So there is the possibility that Paul is realistic enough to know that not everyone in the church gathering on that Sunday morning who was listening to his letter being read aloud was, in fact, a Christian. And based on what we've learned from chapter 2 specifically, and I won't touch on all the verses, it's entirely possible and quite likely that some in attendance had a form of godliness but no power over their sinful self. They were still in their sin, but they were in church listening to Paul's letter being read by the pastor. It's entirely possible and quite likely that some in attendance at that gathering had been invited to the party, so to speak, to hear the truth about Jesus Christ. Because good, loving Christian men and women had heard that a letter had arrived from Paul, their dear apostle. And they're like, bro, you got to come. You need to, you're looking for the meaning of life? Come here, what the apostle, God's anointed servant, has written scripture for us. And so it's entirely possible and quite likely that some in attendance had been invited to the party to hear the truth about Jesus Christ from this letter. Knowing, and those who had invited, knowing that the truth from inspired scripture sets people free from the penalty and power of sin. That leads me to 
declare the gospel to us this morning because it's entirely possible and in fact quite likely that there are some in the room today gathered on this Sunday morning to hear the word of God that are not born again. It's possible. And even if you are a Christian, it's good to hear the gospel again. To just to be comforted and reassured by the truth of who we are in Him. If then you are raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Seek literally means seek and keep on seeking. That's what it means. It's present, indicative. Keep seeking. You know what that tells me? That tells me that you will never find the end. God is infinite in all ways, in His knowledge, in His power, in His counsel, in His love, in His just nature. He's infinite. And that makes Him reliable, a steady force for us in an ever-changing world with so many 80,000 books and a multi-billion dollar market telling you how to change. And we've probably got a few of the books on our shelves ourselves. And Paul's like, no, with all these competing forces bombarding your head and your heart, seek and keep seeking. The greatest example, brothers and sisters, to me personally, just my own opinion, is Moses. Like, you know Moses' famous statement, right? In Exodus 33, show me your glory. Remember that? Moses said to God, show me your glory. God said, hmm, interesting. I'll make a little deal with you, Mo. You go on up into the mountain there again, and you get into this cleft in a rock, so you're like stuck in a hard place. And I'll put my hand over the rock, and I'll walk past, and I'll let you see the backside. Changed him for the rest of his life. Here's the thing. Moses had already been on the mountain for 40 days. He'd already been there. The mountain shaking, the presence of God and his glory coming down. Smoke rising. People backing up. God's like, come on up, Moses. And he went up into the presence of God. And yet sometime later, he's like, I want more. That was good. I want more. Seek and keep on seeking. Keep seeking, brothers and sisters. It tells me that there's, behind that, there's desire. There's a desire to know more. God put that desire in your life. Don't grieve the Spirit of God. Let Him have His way in you to keep seeking. How do I do that? I'm getting to my closing statements already. I'm really going fast here. How do I do that? You already know the answer. You get up every morning, and I do recommend the morning, but you get up in the morning and you make time to sit with an open Bible and a pen and paper in hand, and you spend a bunch of time with the Word of God 
in reading, in thought, in prayer, conversation. Lord, I don't like what that just said. What in the world do you mean by this? Or, oh my goodness, that's touching my life. Lord, I've got these other things going on. This is, this is life with Christ. Do you see how relatable he is with us? Died with, buried, risen, ascended. When he comes again, we're going to stand with him in glory. And I'll tell you what that means in a few minutes. He gives us the desire. Paul's like, keep seeking. You'll never find the end. Paul famously said, I have the unfathomable riches. Tells me that Paul had this sort of sonar thing, is using that language. I got out into the depths of the ocean and I tried to find the bottom. I couldn't find it. And on a personal level, that meant Paul went through all kinds of experiences. And he's like, and the love of God just kept, in, kept establishing me in my faith in spite of all things. Seek those things which are above. What are those things that are above? What are they actually? The things of above, heaven. I believe it's where Christ is sitting, where Christ is. He's, it's, it's the nature of God. When Moses saw, so let me see your glory, God passed by and he declared the name, the Lord, the Lord, gracious and merciful and abundant. And I can't remember all the words. So these are the characteristics that it's the character of God. That's what we're seeking. This is the change they were looking for. Paul's like, forget the self-help books that these people are bothering you with, with their pseudoscience. Everything he needs in Christ, who's sitting at the right hand of God. What's that mean, sitting at the right hand of God? Is he literally sitting on God's right hand? <laughs> <laughs> I'm so literal, that's how I always used to think of it. It's like, get off my hand. That's weird. No, it means that he's the king. He's the universal king. He's the king of the universe. That's what it means. He's the universal king. That's not all it means. Let me just tell you one more thing. See, Jesus actually talked about this himself. He's, he did a little confrontation with the Pharisees one day in the temple. And where they're coming at him... And at him wave after wave of challenge. And then when it's all done, he challenged them. He said, you know, Psalm 110 verse 1 says, The Lord said unto my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies thy footstool. Who's David talking about? And why does he call him Lord? God said unto my Lord. Who's David talking about? Me. And that's Jesus facing his enemies. Sit at my right hand. He's telling them that he's going to die, but he's going to rise and ascend back to the heaven. And he's going to sit there. And sitting down, brothers and sisters, is a very big deal. The writer of Hebrews makes a big deal out of that by telling us that there were priests who stood daily and then once a year at the Day of Atonement, once a year, they'd go in one man with the not one offering for the sin of all the people, but it happened annually. Why is that? Because the blood of animals doesn't take away sin. It's just a band-aid. It's temporary until the, the real comes. And that's the writer of Hebrews makes that point 
Absolutely, he says, but this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. You know what that means? That means I'm justified. All the stuff is not going to be held against me any longer. Your sin has been put away from you. You trust Jesus Christ, you're released from the power and the penalty of sin because of what Jesus did. And the writer of Hebrews, banking off of Psalm 110 verse 1 says, he sat down, it's over. That's why we don't offer animals anymore. That's why we just come here and offer praise. I haven't got to do that. There is no temple or tabernacle. I am the temple of the Holy Spirit. So is the church. Do you know this, brothers and sisters? And I'm telling you, I'm asking you, and I'm pleading with you. Do you know this personally? Have you experienced the regenerative power of Jesus? Are you walking in victory? And Paul is saying under the inspiration of the Spirit, seek and keep seeking. In other words, brothers and sisters, this is the heart and the mind and the words of God to us. God gave Paul these words. And God is saying, keep seeking me. Keep coming after me. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The great gospel declaration by Jesus himself. Run to Christ. Confess your sin. Ask him to be your Lord. Repent and believe and you shall be saved. Why am I passionate about that? Because he's the universal king. And he's the king of the universe. And when he comes again, he will judge. And you will not escape that judgment. So bow the knee now because you're going to bow it sooner or later. You will. Paul said it. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. Jesus Christ is Lord. <gasps> there he is. Do it now. Verse 2, set your mind on things above, <laughs> not on things of the earth. Set your mind. I believe that setting the mind is seeking. <laughs> that is what seeking is. It's, it's make, look, you think about things on purpose. What truck am I going to buy? <laughs> what uh, person will I marry? Uh, we think about these things on purpose, willfully. I, I want to think about a trip to Europe someday going to have the opportunity to do that by God's grace. Like to think about that. Paul's like, come on, Christians. You know the glory of Christ. So seek him by thinking about him intentionally. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ. In God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. I think what Paul means there in verse 4 is that 
the final, the completion of our sanctification will be realized when Jesus comes back. I believe that's what he means. Let me say that again. These people are seeking change. They're being influenced by self-improvement programs, some of them very religious, but not helpful. They're frustrated. Paul hears about it. He writes this letter, go to Jesus. How glorious and wonderful he is, and he's with you, and he's in you, and he's guiding you, and he'll provide all that you need, Jehovah Jireh. He goes, and so the sanctification process has begun when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you'll also appear with him in glory. The perfection that you and I are seeking, and we all have some sense of perfectionism in us, can drive us nuts. He goes, it'll actually be realized when he comes. He'll stand in his perfect, revealed glory, and I'll be there with him. John helps us by saying it this way. Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And then he adds a little word. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. In other words, I kill sin because I, I want to live for his glory. Because he died to make that possible. So, there it is. Colossians 3, 1 to 4. Sandwiched right in there between dealing with the indulgences of the flesh through religious means that aren't helpful and being frustrated by it and wanting the change to coming back to the glory of Christ and then because of that glory, and because he's in me and it's a real reality, I'm going to kill sin, mortify. Next word. So just a couple closing thoughts, questions actually. How does one get the desire to seek God? Or what would inspire a man to seek God? And I was going to read with you the account in the life of Jesus of the rich young ruler. <laughs> Mark chapter 10, right? And I love it because in that, this man who had it all working, actually turn with it. I'm not going to try to paraphrase. We'll just be quick. Mark chapter 10, verse 17. Mark 10, 17. It's better to see it with our own eyes. Mark 10, verse 17. Gospel of Mark. Just a quick snapshot in the life of Jesus. Verse 17. Now as he, Jesus, was going out on the road, one came running, <laughs> knelt before him, and asked him, Do you see it, brothers and sisters? <laughs> Seeking, there's a desire. There's a desire. How does one get the desire to seek God? You have to hear about him. This man has heard about Jesus, the things that he has said and done, and he came running. What a beautiful example. He's such strong desire. And he 
knelt down before him. And he asked him, good teacher, what shall I do that I may have eternal life? Jesus said, why do you call me good? No one's good but God. Do you know who you're talking to, son? (laughs) And then Jesus gives him a few of the commandments from the Ten Commandments. Don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't lie. Don't defraud or covet or honor your father and, and honor your father and mother. And he said, teacher, all these things I've kept from my youth. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, one thing you lack. Go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come take up the cross and follow me. We're all rich young rulers. We got more than we need. Do you realize you hold stuff, figuratively speaking, with a clenched fist or an open hand? It's the only way you can hold things. I can put this paper on my hand or I can hold it in a clenched fist. Am I holding on to it? It's good, I think, sometimes to just give away stuff that we think is important to us. Like I own a spike ball game. I think I'll give that away. (laughs) No, I'm just joking. I don't play spike ball. It's intimidating to me. How does one get desire to seek God? From hearing the glory of Jesus Christ. That this guy, who you would say from just casual observation, like, that dude's put together. He's like, I can't find any. He keeps the law. He's got money. He's he's got authority. He's a ruler. Doesn't say that he's married. So... He's also available. Kind of a good prospect right there, young ladies. And yet, in broad daylight, he kneels down and he's asking. Because all that wasn't satisfying him internally. I need more. Lord. (laughs) And he's like, you're gripped by covetousness, son. You need to give it away. And I love it. Jesus loved him. <laughs> there was honesty. He was hearing. That's where desire comes from. A couple more questions in closing. How does one maintain their desire for God? While living in a world that bombards us with false hopes, empty promises, and satiates our needs with material things. That's a key question. How do you maintain the desire for God? power of the Holy Spirit. He is God. The Holy Spirit is God. As as glorious as you read of Jesus in the Gospels, that same glory is now implanted inside of me. Two Corinthians three eighteen. Beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, and this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. You have to eat right and exercise. In other words, read your Bible and do what it says. 
that keeps our desire active. That is setting our mind in seeking the Lord. So the last question, which would make sense, is how does one recover a lost desire? Because it can happen. It can happen to all of us or any of us at various times in our life as a Christian. How does one recover from a lost desire? And I go right to Jesus' words to the church in Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. He said, remember, repent, and return. Very simple. Remember from which you have fallen. Do you remember first love? When Jesus revealed himself to us, I literally got down on my knees in my family room and I wanted to hug him. I said, Lord, it's not fair. I want to literally hug you because you have saved me. You've saved my marriage, my family. You've given me eternal life. I'm such a scumbag and you've all new life now. It's like the moment when Dorothy landed in Oz. It went from black and white to color. (laughs) It's like all of a sudden there's all this activity in life. It's beautiful. Remember that? That's all Jesus said to that church. He says, you're also very busy, doing a lot of good things. You don't need me anymore. Remember, you've left your first love. Come back to me. Repent. And return. And do the first works. Let's stand and pray. Lord, it's so beautiful to open your word. And have your scripture come alive to us. To feed us, to nourish us with your thoughts. And the intents of your heart. And Lord, I know that you have, uh, you've moved among us this morning. There's a variety of lives here coming from many different contexts. Things that are secret, that only you know about. I'm so thankful, God, that you're able to minister to anyone in any place at any time. So we commend our lives to you, and I pray, Lord, that we will leave here today refreshed, seeking you. You're living. We're with you. You freed us. Thank you that you've enabled us by your spirit to live a life, a supernatural life. A supernatural life of being transformed into your likeness from one degree to the next. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.